Uh, if you have a Bible with you, we could turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I said it earlier as, uh, as we opened the service, but my name is Lance, and I serve as one of the pastors here. It's also a privilege of mine, a joy to be able to uh, pretty regularly consider the Bible with you. That's a joy to me, and I hope and I pray that it's of some benefit to you as well. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 2, the, a little bit of an explanation of our place. We started in November, I guess December really, looking into Advent season, studying the book of Matthew. Our goal is to make it from beginning to end, and we've put over this book, I believe, what is one of the main distinctive themes of Matthew's gospel, especially as over and against Mark and Luke and John. And that is is that Matthew is intent on presenting Jesus as king. The birth narrative of the first chapter, the contrast of his coming into tension with the powers of the world in chapter 2, are just the beginning of what will be an ongoing description and an ongoing unveiling of not only king, but his kingdom. The fact that Jesus has landed and would go on to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, be raised by the power of the Spirit from the dead, ascended and now sits ruling and reigning, ever living to make intercession for us, and that his kingdom, though starting small like a mustard seed, will spread until all bow before him. King and kingdom is the theme that Matthew is is giving to us. And where we are right now, what we started last week, is to consider the very famous visit of the Magi. In the days following the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, a star appeared in the sky. It was an odd sight, odd enough, so that those who studied things like this were enamored by it. And those who studied the stars as well as ancient texts were intrigued by the thought or the possibility of a great ruler coming from Bethlehem, a great ruler born and being highlighted by this star. So in the midst of their pursuits, they come to Herod the king. And coming to Herod the king is no accident. Matthew wants to paint a picture for us to put into contrast the coming of King Jesus and the spread of his kingdom with what will have to fall away, and that is the desperate grasp of human rule. So Herod is a central figure, and the star is a central figure, and the wise men are central figures, all beginning to coalesce around the one great reality of all history, Jesus, the Son. Like any good narrative, any good story that you've read, Matthew employs a couple of tricks. Some of the best things that can happen in the midst of storytelling is to allow the reader information that not all of the characters know. So maybe you've never thought about stories this way, but one of the things that makes for a good moment of tension that puts you toward the edge of your seat and makes you invested in what comes next is if you know something that the people don't know. So the camera pans from the edge of the cliff, goes along the road, and there you see Roadrunner speeding along. And you think to yourself, wait a minute here now, Speedy. There's a cliff coming. You know that. What, is it? what are they? Uh, the Roadrunner bird? It's a bird. The bird doesn't know that. 
And so from the first moments you began to watch cartoons, you entered into an expectation, anticipation of what was coming next. Matthew here tells us some things concerning Herod. He is scheming. He's devising ways to do away with Jesus. And we know that, but the wise men don't. The wise men are following the star. They're going to meet the child, but the mother and the father and the child don't know they're coming. And it's these three pictures. A king who's been ruling for some three decades at this point, it's probably around 5 BC, who's going to be grasping for his rule and power, threatened by the birth of the child, scheming behind the scenes, a group of wise men, we don't know exactly how many, but these magi making their traveling a sort of homage to go to the child, and then another scene of a doting mother and father who have brought in a child with much anticipation and joy. They were visited by angels telling the, the wonder of this child, and they are now raising him in very normal circumstances, unassuming calling one another into the home as Jesus learned to support his own head. Mary crying out, he did it. Joseph, he did it. He rolled over. Joseph frustrated that Jesus now knows how to crawl. It was much easier when he simply stayed on the mat. And in the normal sense, with normal parents raising an extraordinary child, the Son of God himself... The wise men are in between on their way, and Herod is scheming. The star is shimmering, and we are pulled into the story. And what I want to do as I consider the continuing of this story is I'm going to read from verse 7 down through verse 13. 7 to 13. And what we're going to do is we're going to consider a few different angles of what's being told here. Things that will help us to understand, I believe, not only the basics or the facts of the case, but what might we learn from this story. We're going to look for the devious, the devout, and the dreams. The devious, the devout, and the dreams. I want to invite you to look with me, 7th verse of Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read down through verse 13, and I'm going to pause and pray for us. It says this in the seventh verse of chapter 2, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Let's take a moment to pray. I know we've prayed.
before, but with specificity now, that this is not an idle word for us, but that we learn from it. So let's, let's pray. God, give us gratitude that you've spoken. I pray we would not be lax or considerate too familiar a thing that we have your word. So give us proper attentiveness. I pray to God that you'd help us. We've come here with all kinds of confusion and busyness and exhaustion. We're concerned. We have sin that we're dealing with and fighting. Sin that we've coddled and hidden. We've been sinned against in serious ways. And I ask now that you would do what only you can do, that through this living and active word that you would change us. We've prayed before and are praying now, and we've sung, we've greeted one another and meditated, read Scripture. These are all things that we can do, but we ask now, good Father, send your Spirit to do what only you can do. Change us one degree to the next, instill hope in us, make us more sturdy, give us strength of soul, convict us, and comfort. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think I want to start with the dreams, because the dreams will have the least amount of Clarity, in case you were curious, there are going to be things about dreams, especially in Scripture, that I simply will not be able to answer. And so because it will be perhaps the most ambiguous as we get to the end of discussing it, I thought we should start with one of the great realities of this text, and that is is that Matthew 2, along with the book of Genesis, makes use of dreams more than any other place in the Bible. And perhaps because you know the story well or you've heard it before, we are often tempted to gloss over things like this. And we could gloss over it pretty easily because God is creator of all things. The fact that He holds everything together by the word of His power, the fact that He can reveal Himself is not foreign to us. Because He's God, He can do this kind of thing. And so sometimes we say, okay, I guess He just did. But I want to answer a few more pointed questions. Things like this that may come to mind as you read a story from Matthew 1 and 2. In fact, this is the third time, by the time we get to the 13th verse, it's the third time in a chapter and a half that a dream has significantly driven the narrative of the story. Joseph finds out the birth of Jesus and his name in a dream. The wise men are warned not to go back to Herod because of a dream. And then Joseph gets the double dream and he is told to go to Egypt. So there are questions like this. How often does God do this sort of thing? Maybe a question like this. Should I expect Him to speak to me like this? Maybe a question like this. Am I not righteous because I don't talk to God like this? And in response to some of these thoughts or these questions, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview We taught through two books ago the book of Genesis, and Genesis has a good number of dreams. And so if you're curious and you think to yourself, I would 
like to know more about this. And Lance took a couple minutes on Sunday morning, but he just really made me more crazy than settled. Brian and I actually recorded a podcast. I wrote a little little thing for the church about two and a half years ago that outlines some of these things, but I'm going to go over it very quickly now because it is a significant fact of the, the story of Jesus' life in the earliest days that dreams move the narrative. Here are a couple things to know as we start thinking about dreams throughout Scripture. As far as I can tell, there are around 15 cases, 12 to 15 cases, where we know for sure this seems to be a sanctioned dream of God where He's using it in human history. There are a number of places that may be well known to you, like Jacob, for instance. He gets put to sleep, he wrestles with God, he interacts with Him, he's given a new name, God seems to be speaking audibly in that moment, and that is an instance. We know later that Joseph is given a kind of superpower concerning dreams, and he has a dream where he sees a sign, but we don't necessarily hear God's voice. The cupbearer and the baker also have dreams, disturbing dreams. Pharaoh has a dream with just signs. Gideon does. Solomon hears from God audibly, it seems, in a dream in 1 Kings 3, 5. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a bit of a bummer of a dream, a warning. And then now, I already told you, Joseph has two dreams here in the first few chapters. The wise men are spoken to in a dream. And then Matthew chapter 27 later, Pilate's wife will also receive instruction in a dream. She's going to wake up in the morning and go to Pilate and say, here's the deal. I had a dream. Have nothing to do with the murdering of this man. Now, relatively speaking, when you consider that Scripture is written over the course of a couple thousand years, really, of the history of mankind, it's not that many, 12 to 15. So one temptation when we read the Bible, when we see especially extraordinary things, is to think to ourselves, well, this is how God works, and if I don't see Him working like this, He must not be there. But in the big scope of things, 12 to 15 recorded instances of dreams are not all that many, though they're significant enough to make us wonder, how do these work? Now, what I thought would have been a very spiritual, serendipitous kind of moment is if I would have had a dream last night about how to explain dreams to you in church today about dreams in the Bible. And wouldn't that have just been a miraculous little Chinese nesting doll of ideas? But I can report to you that no matter how hard I tried on my drive here this morning, I could not remember a single thing about my dreams last night. And to be honest with you, If I had remembered, it likely would have been something so inane, so stupid, that it would not have helped in any way. And maybe your dreams are like that too. I remember once as a child having a vivid memory of waking up in the morning and slightly terrified because I had dreamt that a massive hamburger had chased me. It felt so real. And I guess in my childlike brain... Somehow also felt fitting. I had eaten my fair share of hamburgers after all. Maybe I had it coming. So I could not remember any of my dreams. And so instead, I'm going to have to offer you what seems to be some explanation from the rest of parts of Scripture concerning their use in the Bible. The first is from Numbers chapter 12, verses 5 to 9. I'm going to read just a couple of verses from this. But it gives sanction to the idea that God, when He wants, can reveal Himself in this way. 
And really, when we're considering dreams, all we're saying is one more category of the way that God speaks. Note Numbers 12, verse 5. It says, And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. Well, there's another instance where God seems to move in mysterious ways. He came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, so he's speaking audibly, in some kind of presence, coming down from a pillar of a cloud. These are all ways that God is sovereignly revealing himself. And then he says, hear my words, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. He goes on to say later of Moses, but not with Moses. When I speak with him, it's mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. But what I want to pull out from here is the idea that God has set down for us in plain Scripture that He is sovereign and has the prerogative to speak or reveal Himself in a myriad of ways. So, though it may be neat and tidy to say dreams are weird, dreams are crazy, they can't be trusted and we won't ever know, therefore God doesn't do that kind of thing or He won't do that kind of thing I would just say that Scripture seems to allow God to be sovereign to communicate however He wants. And the baseline response from us should be gratitude. Sometimes, the Bible tells us, God communicates in creation. And that all of creation is telling of His character and His ways. Other times, God speaks seemingly in audible words. Other times, He speaks through prophets. Other times, through animals. Sometimes in visions. Now, when I said there were 12 to 15 cases of dreams, there are many more visions, but those seem to be daydream kind of things. I only included the kind of I'm drooling on myself, dead to the world, sleeping kind of thing in those categories. But here we are told that sometimes a prophet who is of the Lord would have a revelation from God and it would have come to him in a dream. However, right in this revelation, God says that when I speak to Moses... I speak to him not in riddles. I think the idea being there is that sometimes at their best, dreams are kind of a riddle. That seems to be the case with Joseph or Nebuchadnezzar or the cupbearer. A second thing that Scripture says clearly, though God is sovereign and able to speak in dreams like this, we also must be careful. Because dreams have at their core a kind of hidden riddle-like nature, they can also often be misused. And this might be good for us to pay attention to if you're the kind of person who says, I would love for and need God to speak to me in this kind of way. Scripture is full of warnings about the misuse of dreams. Because prophets sometimes heard from God in this way, they also were tempted to misuse this. So Deuteronomy chapter 13 starts with this warning. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises, someone who's just called a dreamer of dreams, arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or the wonder tells you that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, verse 3 says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. He goes on to say, because God is testing you if you're going to walk after his commands. Here's the test here. A dream comes. The guy says, how about this? Why don't we worship God and some other gods? And the test, the thing that always should be done, is you take the dream and you bring it against the standard of revealed Scripture. Things that God has made clear should never be sidelined for ways that God might sovereignly communicate in ways that are more riddle-like. And Deuteronomy 13 goes on to tell you what to do with a dreamer of dreams like that. 
It says clearly in verse 5, that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. And that just takes care of that. So, supposing tomorrow you wake up in the morning and tonight was the fateful night. It was your Joseph moment. I would, if I'm in your shoes, still be careful about how much you invite others to say, build your life on this. God spoke to me in a dream, considering it needs to be against the standard of Scripture that's been revealed, against the standard of the person of Jesus, against the standard of God's characters revealed in creation. And if you're wrong, we kill you. I mean, we, we don't, but it's dangerous. It's not in our bylaws. That's not what we do officially. But I will say this. Passion and vision and a desire for someone to want to speak truth of God, to have a vision for these things is very tempting. Tempting for both the one who would say, I communicated with God in this way, and tempting for those of us who want to hear. I do not know what it is about the human spirit, but if we announce to one another, hey, on Wednesday, you should gather together with me. I have a word from God for you. Direct instruction from his mouth. And then you come and I open up and say, let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Somehow that's not as exciting. Then if I said to you, why don't you come on Wednesday? I have some dreams that I had for you. I was knocked out cold, sleeping on my fancy pillow, Tempur-Pedic to all the way to the core, but I got something special for you. It was a dream. I think people would flock to that. There's something in our nature that wants the strange, that wants the desire, that wants the previously unknown, the mysterious. And Scripture says we ought to be careful about trusting too much in this kind of thing. In fact, of the 12 to 15 cases of drooling on yourself, knocked out cold kind of dreams that were true and seem to move the story along, there are probably at least as many warnings of those who would lie about this kind of thing. Prophets who would stand up and say, I've dreamed a dream, so listen to me. So we ought to be careful. One final word concerning dreams, and that is, because God is sovereign and because He's so gracious to reveal Himself, because it's His prerogative to do this, and sometimes He does, We should not be totally closed off. I don't know what it means to be cautious except to say that we should should take these things and place them against a standard of truth. We should not build our lives upon them and be ready to put them to death or jettison them if they go against what has been revealed and at the same time remain somewhat expectant. Joel chapter 2 tells us that in the the last days, in the the later days, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men, I can't say that word, prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And you might say to me, so what does that mean? Which old men will dream dreams? How will young men see visions? What will the daughters and sons be doing in prophesying. And at some level, I can say to you with certainty, I don't know. Except that the coming days, the revealing of the Spirit of God dwelling us, indwelling us, seems to be a promise that there should be an expectation that God's revelation of who He is 
and how He works and what is necessary for us, His plan for us, His love for us, should increase in clarity, not decrease. There is coming a day in the future where our sight will be more sure, where our desires and our hearts will be more tied to the person and the plan of God than ever before. This dream section of Matthew chapter 2 is a part of the plan of God to show us what He has done, the great lengths that He has done to save us from our sins. And Matthew includes it to show us the tension that is taking place, the rescuing, the sort of protecting that is needed for the Son of God that has been born. And the question comes right at the outset, why? Maybe we might ask just the facts of the case. Why are these dreams necessary? And these dreams are necessary because of the devious nature of Herod the king. Herod the king is scheming. We know that he does not desire to come and worship the child as he lies blatantly in verse 8. We know that he goes to the wise men secretly to find out where the child's been born because he does not want anyone to know that he is scheming the death of the child. And here, I believe, in Matthew chapter 2, Herod shows for us a kind of caricature, a picture of something. He is representative of a human heart that seeks Jesus with all the wrong motivations, that seeks Jesus in order to tame him, that desires understanding spiritually so that they could continue on in self-rule. Herod represents sort of the secular world, the powers that be. A heart that says, wait, a king has been born, that means I can't be king, and responds against it. And in many ways, it is fitting and true and right to say, yeah, don't be like that Herod, the conniving, scheming, devious one. He simply doesn't want to bow to Jesus. He's a power-hungry, pagan, king of a man, and we would never be like that. And maybe we'd be tempted to say something like this, the world out there, they're not going to receive our king. Now, these things, of course, would be true. Herod is terrible, and it's only going to get worse. Next week, we're going to consider his campaign of infanticide across the land. But I wonder if there isn't a bit of reflection necessary with Herod as well. Like many stories, in order to prove a point, there's a caricature or a a figure that carries along a kind of meaning. And in this case, I wonder if it also wouldn't be helpful to say that this counting of the cost, this examining of motivations in being a spiritual person or in coming to Jesus might be helpful for all of us. Herod says, tell me when the star appeared because I want to go and worship him as well. Well, he's lying blatantly. But he's lying in order to protect something. To protect his position, his esteem, his power. And I would be lying if I didn't say to you that whenever I am convicted concerning sin, I often kind, I find a kind of similar, similar deviousness at my soul. There's one thing that I've learned, and I'll say it of me. Maybe if you were there as well, then you can follow along. 
I'm often astounded at my capacity for self-deception. I may not lie openly like Herod does. You know, Herod's a sort of caricature. He goes to the wise men and he says, yes, yes, tell me where he is so I may come worship him. And then he's going like this. <laughs> you know, he's, he's so obvious. I find that the nature of my desire for self-rule is much more insidious and small than this. I find in the moment that I'm convicted concerning my pettiness, my jealousy, my pride, I look back and I say, who are you? How did you not see this? I find that when I'm convicted concerning anger, I look back and I find ways that I have determined the course of my own life and thought about what I deserved and needed. And I think to myself in that moment, why do you do this? How can you not see? Whenever the Spirit convicts me and shows me areas of life where I've been seeking escape, whether I'm lethargic or I find pleasure in some kind of thing, though I know by just bald-faced facts these things are terrible and not for me, I look back and I find a series of compromises and ignoring some moments where I just said to myself, well, I didn't lie to anybody out loud, but I'm lying to myself. What, what was I doing in this? And it's the Spirit of God that brings me to the point where I say, stop the deviousness, stop the conceit, and bring yourself wholly honestly before the Lord. And so I have never been a regional ruler in the Roman Empire who sat on a throne and commanded the death of children so that I would avoid my throne being overtaken. Of course I've never lived that caricature but I certainly have counted the cost of self-rule and at times been very hesitant to bend the knee. I've carved out a place for Jesus conveniently in my life and left other things completely to myself. So this lesson ought to be an invitation for us to examine our motives. Much of the rest of Matthew is going to be filled with people seeking Jesus. So that's the funny part. Herod is seeking Jesus. Isn't that a good thing on its face? He's seeking after him. He's finding out, you know, it's, what's more amazing than that, he's seeking Jesus and he has the right information. He knows the deal with the star. He knows the, home, the birth. He knows that he's the king of the Jews. Or he knows that that's the, the expectation. He's got right information. He's in fact seeking him. He's just seeking him for all the wrong reasons. And the rest of Matthew is going to be full of people like this. Jesus attracts people for good or bad. There will be countless stories when Jesus finally gets a crowd. Imagine you're a disciple of Jesus and you're in on the organization. You're a dutiful employee, I'm sure. You love the mission statement of the company. You're trying to make a thing go forward. You have integrity and so you're doing your work the best you can and you think to yourself, I want us to succeed. So imagine you're a disciple. There are times throughout Jesus' ministry where the crowd is just overwhelming. It's Jesus Palooza. That's what's being described. He has to go out onto a boat sometimes. They're crowding in. It's all over the place. And it's right at that moment when you'd be tempted to think, this is great, finally success. You know what Jesus does? He wakes up in the morning and he says, way too many people. They're all here for the wrong reasons. I need to offend them. Hold on. He goes on, he stands in front of them and he says, hello, people who understand things that are, that are terrible and, uh, and unclean. Let me tell you what you need to do to follow me since you're all here. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. 
And the crowd starts to rustle a little bit, and they're like, man, he was cool yesterday. And because they can't take the hard saying and they don't want to know what he means, they begin to wander. Then he says to them things like this, hey, you want to follow me? Hate your mom and dad. You want to follow me? Go sell everything you have and then come. You want to follow me? They're going to hate you and despise you like they did me. You want to follow me? We got no Hyatt points. We got no cruise ships. We're going to lay in the dust and the dirt, nowhere to lay our heads. And Jesus continually, it seems, to, he continues to upend the success of his own mission. Why? Because he knows what's in the heart of mankind. And there's tons of people who are coming because he's the best circus that's ever come to town. You know, life was kind of boring now, but we got the guy who, who, who gets leprosy gone by speaking. That's kind of cool. One time I was watching Jesus, it was amazing. Some, some uh, demon-possessed man was, was there. He's throwing himself in the fire and writhing around. It was crazy. What a show. This guy's insane. Anyway, so I'm watching it, right? And then Jesus commands them. Some demons come out, but it rushes into some pigs. Then these pigs went just completely hurting across and jumped over a cliff. It was unbelievable. And if you're bored in your small town, you might come to Jesus simply for the show. Other people go to Jesus because they believe that he's powerful and they want some of his power. Isn't it true even that the closest people to Jesus sometimes were following him for the wrong reasons? The mom pulls him aside and says, Jesus, here's the way I see it. You're going to have a throne one day. There's going to be a seat to your right and to your left. What if, what if you know, we're in early. We're in early on this thing. Our downline's going to be huge. We're in early. What if my sons were right there at your side and they could take some of the power? And in every one of these instances, what we learn is again and again and again, the motivations in seeking Jesus are as if not more important than the fact that we understand Him at all or want Him at all. If you come for a sign or you come for the power, you come for the show, if you come merely for the healing then he says, you do not understand. In the spirit of Herod, one of the most, I believe, terrifying verses in all the Bible comes in Matthew chapter 7. It's a bit of a spoiler for future texts. But Jesus says this in the 21st verse of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's amazing. Jesus gives this speech just following the Sermon on the Mount. His moment of grand success. The crowds are coming in. He says, I just, I just want you to remember if you were here for the power that you got, if you were here for the show, if you were here for a job, be careful of your motivations. Scripture says clearly in Corinthians that, that from time to time we ought to examine ourselves. I'm going to put a huge disclaimer in the midst of this. And I want to tell you that there are some people who have very, very sincere consciences. And what I don't want you to do is to take this idea to read Matthew 7 and to make it your devotional life for the next two years. I do not believe that Scripture invites us to a spirit of anxiety or fear concerning Jesus. 
But it is good for us in the process of sanctification to have a sincere desire to have our motivations purified. It might be a good thing, in the spirit of Corinthians it says examine yourself, in light of Herod the caricature, it might be good every once in a while to take stock and get some time by yourself or go to bed at night and say things like this, God, I love you, I want you to rule my life, show me the places that I don't let you rule. God, give me courage to bring to light, bring out into the light all the areas that I've kept off to myself in a spirit of compromise and coddling. It might be worthwhile to pray something like this. God, please break my pride. Show me that you are king and I am not. And if there's anywhere in my life that's unseen, the funniest thing about the uh, Psalms sometimes is that they will confess, the Psalms will confess a litany of sins and then at the end it'll say something like this, also, I confess the hidden sins that I don't even know about. And so if Matthew 2 is a story of motivations, is it enough that Herod wants to find Jesus? No. Because he wants to find him to do away with him. He sees him as a threat. It will only do to seek Jesus on Jesus' terms. And that brings us to the idea of the devout. These wise men, these magi, are really an amazing part of the story. They are anonymous completely. We don't even know how many of them there were. There are three gifts, so people often have said, there's we three kings, you know, like that kind of thing. We don't know. One guy could have brought two gifts. It could have been three gifts from a whole crowd of people. But the reality is, is that if, if Herod represents the deviousness and self-deception of the human heart, then there are also a few lessons, I believe, to learn from the anonymous wise men who come. The first thing to note is that their pursuit of Jesus is marked by joy. Matthew is called a gospel after all. Gospel means good news. Good news is objective. God is the truth, the center of all things in the universe. And so, new life, stamped in His image, His glory, those are good things, whether you hate them or not. But, good news lands subjectively on human beings. And the thing about the good news of the gospel is it's only gospel if it's good news to you. If you asked Herod, hey, Matthew's going to write a story about this. It's about the good news of the coming of Jesus. He would have said, what good news? That was terrible news. The first thing to note about the wise men is that they found growing anticipation and joy in finding the Christ. Joy marks the good news. It tells us in verse 9 that after listening to the king, they went on their way, the star rose before them, came to rest over the place where it was, and in response, where the child was, they saw the star and rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love how Matthew just stacks words on top of each other to try to capture the scene. What were they doing when they saw the star? Oh, they were rejoicing. Well, describe that. Exceedingly rejoicing. With what? Joy. How much joy? Great joy. That's how much exceeding rejoicing they were doing. He just stacks the words on top of each other, like trying to meet a word limit in your eighth grade essay. The thing that marked them was joy. The king has come. Yes, I'm sick of trying to rule myself. The savior has come. Yes, I need saving. God is present. 
Yes, I long for him. Joy marks their response to the Son. And this will be the ongoing motivational test of those who have come to Jesus. Maybe not that you would live in a happy, clappy kind of place for the rest of your life, but joy ought to be some mark of your existence. Joy, sometimes waxing, sometimes waning, but present nonetheless. When I think of a passage like this, when I read Matthew 2, I think of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Peter tries to describe, what is it like to love and know Jesus? This is what he says in verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see how Peter has to do the same thing that Matthew did? It's a kind of bubbling, abiding joy. Sometimes it just looks like pure happiness at the forgiveness of sins. And this joy, sometimes it looks like the the rest that comes with finally giving up the striving. And sometimes the joy feels like the belonging in a community of brothers and sisters. And sometimes the joy comes with that little bit of hope that says, I can keep going, there's a future for me. But nonetheless, all these joys compounded on one another can't be expressed. So Matthew said, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy, great joy. Peter says the same thing. They rejoiced with what? They rejoiced with joy. What kind of joy? It's inexpressible, but it's also filled with glory. These words being toppled on top of one another in a rush to express what new life looks like. What is it like to be born again in Jesus? Well, in some ways it's expressible, in other ways it's inexpressible. I've said this often before, but I always and will forever think of my grandfather when I read this passage. My grandfather, until his mid-40s, was not a Christian. He was described by by many in those days before I knew him as what someone called a a, a committed man of the town, is how they described him. And yet my grandpa in his mid-40s met Jesus and it transformed his life. And he was marked by joy in a way that no other person I've ever met was. He would come in from the field. He grew up one house over from me on a farm. He'd come in from the field. He'd sit down in his recliner chair. My grandmother would come over. She would stuff part of the newspaper in under his shirt, put it down in front of him so he wouldn't spill all over himself when he ate. And he'd sit there and he'd eat, and I would come over and I would have grandma's mac and cheese. And every chance he'd get, he got, my grandfather would tell me again how he met Jesus. And somewhere along the way, He'd be describing the story, and then he'd say, you know what, and I've just never regretted it for a second. It's been new life, and he's met us, and he's never forsaken us, and he would just bubble and bubble and bubble until he finally had to stop because he'd well up with tears, and they'd just be coming down his face. And somehow the story would just, mid-story would stop, and he'd just look at me smiling, just grinning this huge ear, this ear from ear to ear grin, tears coming down his face. He would stop talking because he couldn't express it. And I read 1 Peter 1, 8, 9, and I think to myself, what does it mean to not see Jesus but to love him? What does it mean to not see him now but to have a faith that's sturdy in your soul? Well, somewhere in there, it's joy. That expresses it. It's joy. 
And Peter equates that to more or less the thing to hold on to. It's why Psalm 51, in the midst of his praying over his sin, what's the thing that he laments the most? He says, I've sinned against you, only I've sinned. At the end of it, he says, please restore unto me the joy of my salvation. It is a sad thing to lose joy. Now, I live in the real world like you. And I don't think you should judge yourself too harshly or one another too harshly because every once in a while, it feels to me that perhaps the auto-response to the craziness of this world, to my own soul, to the sadness around us is just crankiness. Sometimes I interact with cranky people and I think, ah, they're more right than me. I don't know. And then I'm brought back and I say, "But but I do know and I don't want to live like this. And so in the same way that it would be good every once in a while to go to bed or to spend a moment aside and say, Jesus, I know you're king and you want my whole life. Show me where I'm not letting you rule. It might also be good for you to say something like this and restore real joy in me. Give me a kind of hope for life, a kind of liveliness, a contentedness, a rest that you promise. Because rejoicing is what it means to have found him. One of my goals in preaching through or teaching through Matthew is that Matthew starts to be equated with or maybe gets even a little bit smaller and the gospel, according to Matthew, gets bigger. So as you read it, more and more what marks you is not only your knowledge and understanding of the text and of Matthew as a character and a disciple in the story of historical redemption, but also you begin to just say to yourself the more and more you read it, good news, good news. Good news. 